0: Hello and welcome to the Paterno Fellows Podcast, a podcast designed to help students navigate the requirements of the Paterno Fellows Program through exploring research, service, creative opportunities, and engaging in meaningful conversation about contemporary campus issues. This is a podcast created by and for the students of the Paterno Fellows Program. I'm your host, Ladin Solman. And today we are joined by Simon Hader, who is an assistant professor of public policy in the School of Public Policy here at Penn State. He has a broad range of work which focuses on topics ranging from vaccine requirements to the opioid epidemic. He is a frequent contributor in newsletters such as The Conversation, the Charleston Gazette Mail, and the Register Herald. And his articles have been picked up by a number of publishers such as The Huffington Post, Business Insider, and The Associated Press, just to name a few. In this conversation, Simon and I discussed COVID-19 mandates, the difference between people who are vaccine-hesitant and vaccine-resistant, and much more. And without any further ado, my conversation with Professor Hayter. All right, so uh, today we're joined by uh, Professor Hayter. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, I, you know, I, re- I really just want to start um, by asking you what exactly, you know, being a professor of public policy, what exactly academia has meant to you, um, even as if you reached this far back to when you were a student, um, to today being an educator and a researcher, um, what would you say academia means to you?
1: Um, well, that's a that's a very good question. Um, you know, w- w- when I started going to college, and I started out on a community college, so it's it's very very different from you know a research intensive university and a massive university like Penn State. But I really liked the atmosphere of a campus. Um, you know, I just really liked everybody coming there to learn, and there was this great you know. This, this 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 culture of learning was there, and so I got really intrigued, and I really liked it, and uh, I I kind of figured that's kind of the place where I wanted to be, you know, in my for the rest of my life, I kind of never wanted to leave, and so you know, you get to, you know, the four year college, and then you know, I, I got my PhD at Wisconsin, which is you know very similar to to Penn State, you know, it's just. Uh, just a wonderful place to to be, you know. These wonderful research universities with their massive student bodies, the culture, the learning, you know, learning about other stuff than the stuff you're studying. It's just just a wonderful place. And so, for me, academia is like the the place where where I wanted to be with my life. Um, and it's just um, just a place where I feel like. I, you know, my, my interests fit in, you know, the, the ability to continue to learn, to continue to freely pursue what I want to pursue, you know, that, that's really what's drawn me to, to academia. That's of course, you know, as you might know, not, not all of academia, right? There's universities are, are institutions of learning and, and great cultural places, but they're also bureaucracies and there's a lot of stuff that comes with it. And then the profession of academia itself, right? Uh, there's a, a lot of bad things associated with it as well, but, you know, you, you, when, when you really like it and when you love it, like myself, I think you kind of look past it most of the time and, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't get you down too much.
0: Right. And, uh, you're talking about, you know, the love of learning and to be able to freely pursue what it is that you want to pursue. Um, and kind of the love for for it allows, allows you to overcome some of the more negative aspects of academia. But I feel as though, um, it's all of our responsibilities to protect academia from the sort of bureaucratic element of it. Um, how would you say your work, um, sort of touches upon that and, and tries to, you know, break down the barriers, which maybe certain bureaucratic elements may try to silence or suppress in the modern climate?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think, you know, um, just because of the size of what we're doing here, right? We, we have we have to organize it somehow. And so there's always going to be a bureaucratic element because so much money, so many people, right? We, we can't just all do whatever we want and we got to get some structure in it. Uh, I think, you know, sometimes, and that's, you know, not a Penn State issue. That's an overall higher education issue. We we, we kind of neglect the, the learning part and, you know, the culture of learning part a little bit because, you know, it's easy to... Perpetuate bureaucracy once you start it, and you know, then then you move away a little bit from the focus of learning and and the emphasis on students and, and researchers, right? Because those are the the co- two core things of, of universities are the researchers and the students together and independent, and, and you know sometimes because so much money involved there's so many people involved you know it, it gets kind of pushed back and it just turns into a giant bureaucracy that creates rules and more rules and more restrictions and you know, as i said some of that some of that we need um but i think oftentimes we've just just gone done a little bit too far and so you know that creates restrictions that creates um you know restrictions on, on some you know demographics more than others. You know you have to be willing to fight through it, and you know there's a lot of barriers that we need to break down. Uh, it's it's hard. You know I think you know for for people that have been in academia for a long time, that's you know they kind of grown into it, and that's how we've always done it. And you know they're they're kind of impervious to to, to making changes. And so you know there's there's I think mean, f- people like myself and lots of other young researchers coming in and we have other ideas of of how we want to do things and how we want to run places and how we want to focus on, you know, connections to students and how we want to be engaged inside and outside the classroom. And we want to do great scholarly work and publish in academic journals, but we also want to, you know, change the world because we have a lot of knowledge about the things we study and and we want to, you know, influence how how things shape out inside and outside the university. And so there's a, within academia, there's a lot of these clashes, right, between those two you know, ivory tower mentality and the, the open, you know, part of the community kind of uh, uh, people like myself. And, you know, it's a challenge. Um, as I said, you know, you love what you're doing and you try to not let it get you down. But, uh, you know, taking a step back, you know, being on campus is still one of the greatest places you can ever be. And so it's, it's wonderful that I, it kind of happens for me to be my career and I can hang out here for a long time.
0: Sure. Yeah, I think that was a wonderful response. Thank you. Uh, and and speaking a little bit beyond, you know, the degrade the potential degradation, I should say, of, of uh, institutions and of, of academia, I would say the degradation of public opinion um, is definitely something that we see um, increasingly uh, th- these days. Um, and from your article, uh, from an article actually posted by Albert Hunt just mm-hmm. this last Sunday, vaccine resistors are a real problem. Um, he quoted you in saying there has always been a fringe in reference to people who are resistant Mm -hmm. to vaccinations, anti-vaxxers, and specifically in the COVID uh, vaccine context. And now it's a mainstream of the Republican party. Um, So I I just wanted to ask you uh, from sort of like a public policy perspective and from your, you know, very educated standpoint, how, how did this grow to be this big of a problem? Because when I look back into my memory, I see, anti-vaxxers being sort of acquainted with the conspiracy theorists. It's kind of like Mm -hmm. this fringe, you know, we don't really pay attention to them. They're, you know, they're off the rails a little bit, but now even the conspiracy theorists have kind of entered the conversation, the mainstream. Mm -hmm. Um, And so how, how would you account for that um, increase?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. Let me start by saying this: public opinion and all that kind of stuff feeds into what we previously talked about with you know academia and learning as well, right? Especially at public universities like Penn State or Wisconsin, right? It's it's unfortunate in a lot of ways that you know politics and and, and public opinion have have so much influence the way we do things at universities. That 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 is an aside. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a couple of things going on with with relate. Really, related to the to vaccine hesitancy or anti-vaxxers or whatever you want to call it uh, i think there is a secular growth in in people uh that have um it's not just anti-vaxxers right it's it's, it's this the sentiment and, and, and secular growth in people that are skeptical of expertise that are skeptical of science that are into you know the conspiracy kind of things Distrustful of institutions, distrustful of government, uh, and you know that we've we've seen a growth in all of that kind of stuff, and they're all kind of interrelated. And there's a number of reasons why we've seen that. Right, the internet certainly, social media, you know, the, there's easy way to connect and spread this information. It's harder to, you know, have we don't have any gatekeepers. You know, it used to be CBS and ABC. You know, and the nightly news it used to be kind of gatekeeping information to a degree that's good or bad, right? You know, good and bad sides to all of this kind of stuff. But we've seen that interaction. There's just been uh, a growing populism within politics, particularly on the right side of politics in the United States, questioning authority, questioning, you know, expertise, questioning government, questioning academia in in particular. And so I think there's this underlying current there uh, that's just created a lot of skepticism about what, you know, people wouldn't have questioned forty years ago, right? Forty years ago, scientists, you know, the the, the gods and white or whatever, you know, would have come up with a vaccine that has an incredible high rate of effectiveness and efficacy and all those kind of things. People wouldn't have questioned that, right? They would have taken it if you told them to take it. We have the secular growth of distrust in government, distrust in institution and everything I just talked about going on. Then I think it kinda you know, we, we had that going on before COVID, right? There's, there's ample stuff that going on with MMR and autism, you know, all those kind of things. But as you, as you said, it was, it's still a small number. And I think one of the reasons, another reason besides what I just said, why we've seen more of it is that, you know, the MMR stuff and that kind of stuff was confined mostly to a small group of people because only a small group of people were really affected by it. And most, mostly people with kids, and then especially kids who had autism, right? And then, you know, people who are really concerned about that kind of stuff. And we didn't force, you know, a 60-year-old to take the m vaccine. I, vaccine. You know, we did it you know, back when they were a kid and it wasn't a problem. But, you know, we, we had this, this this core set of anti-vaxxers that were just small because not a lot of people were directly affected and there was not a lot of pressure on them, you know, through schools to get vaccinated and all those kind of things. Now, we have the secular things going on and all of a sudden there's this pressure or mandate, even you know, in some ways, to to get vaccinated uh, against COVID, which I I have to you know emphasize here is completely the right thing to do. Uh, you know, the science is there, the the data are all there, so that's that's something we should be doing. But now we're affecting basically the entire population. So where it used to be just parents concerned about their kids getting autism, now it's everybody, and so secular growth of skepticism on the rise now everybody is affected and so now we get a hardcore of people who are really resistant you know there's a, there's a different, differentiation here between vaccine hesitant in the literature and vaccine resistant the resistant almost at all costs will never take the vaccine or any vaccine for that matter hesitant you know it's the ones that are like on the fence and need convincing and you know all of those require different strategies to get to them and, and get them get them vaccinated. Uh, I think we should also, and I think this is the last thing I want to say here, unless you have other questions, uh, is is that there's also the people that are not vaccine, hesitant or resistant. They just haven't gotten the resources or haven't gotten the access to get vaccinated. And so in terms of people that are currently unvaccinated are obviously the hesitant, the resistant, and the people that haven't gotten the chance to get vaccinated—they all require different policy responses—and we are not doing too great on all, all three of those groups.
0: Right. I really like the added nuance of um, the, the vaccine resistant and the vaccine hesitant, and I think that adds a lot to the picture. Um, and I do like the way you describe it as sort of like this underlying current. It's not as though out of nowhere. And correct me if I'm understand Like, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'll see if I'm understanding you correctly. That it wasn't just suddenly like this uprise of people who were uh, opposed, uh, specifically I'm talking about the resistant uh, people to vaccines, but that it wasn't affecting that many people um, because the previous vaccines didn't um, sort of vaccinate um, viruses that were so widespread. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now we have COVID, which is obviously in its name a pandemic, uh, which is by its nature widespread. And so that's why we see all these people standing up in resistance, but it's not as though these, those, those people didn't exist all along.
1: Yeah, that's, that's that's exactly correct. And they could get around a lot of people, you know, that were concerned about their kids and it's obviously false, catching autism from MMR. You know, those are also the people that were homeschooling their kids so they don't have to deal with vaccine mandates or they live in States where the the school requirements are very lax. You know, the, the requirements for vaccinations in schools are very, very different from state to state. And there's only really a, three States that are really like on the forefront of of doing the right thing here and being really strict on mandates and and very strict on who can get an exemption. And the other ones, you know, you just sign a form or whatever, or they don't have any requirements at all. And um, you know, so the, 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 you're exactly right. There's some, some growing, there was an, a latent, if you will, body of people that were, were hesitant or resistant in the first place. And, you know, the COVID stuff and the push of, of getting people vaccinated just, you know, turned that latency into activism. And here we are.
0: Right, right. And, and on the topic of, of, of mandates, uh, you, you released a, um, well, you had a, what's it called? A study uh, published in the journal Vaccine on April 22nd of this year titled Joining the Herd U.S. public opinion and vaccine requirements across educational settings during the COVID nineteen mm-hmm. pandemic, um, and in an article with uh, by Katie Bone on the Penn State News a couple of days before um, it was published, um, one of the major findings was that a majority of those surveyed supported mandates that required students and teachers to be vaccinated against COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, sort of what I'm hearing in the popular media media is a much more Um, sort of dichotomous and split picture. But after, you know, looking at the study, obviously it wasn't necessarily like 80, 90%, in most Mm -hmm. cases, it was mostly around 60 to 70. But can you just speak a little bit on the study itself and the results of the study um, in sort of changing public opinion on how many people are really in support of mandates um, for students and teachers in educational systems?
1: Yeah, so you know the study does a lot, and you know I'll I'll try to sum it up in in, in a couple of a couple of sentences here. So I I look at three educational settings that basically cover all of education: daycares, K through twelve education, and universities and colleges and then i kind of look at them you know do you think people should gen- or the students in those settings should generally be vaccinated should they be vaccinated uh, against covid-19 and then should the the staffers and teachers be vaccinated and you know it's it's hard you know to to parse out all the nuances in a couple of sentences but i think overwhelmingly you know people the majority of americans are in support of, of requiring, you know, people to get vaccinated and the vaccines are safe and effective. Uh, I think that's the takeaway point uh, that generally, you know, it often gets missed in this debate about mandates, right? Because these are the people that are not in the streets, you know, or, or you know, throwing stuff at, at policymakers and all those kind of things. Uh, you know, the majority of people are okay with this kind of stuff. Uh, if you add up the people that are kind of undecided or on the fence, then the numbers get really, really large. And there's really, again, just a hardcore of people that are super opposed to these kind things. And and, and from a policy perspective, it's going to be very hard to to get to those people and move them, right? Because, you know, their worldview is very much, you know, medical freedom is kind of the the buzzword people use, right? Don't tell me what to do with my body kind of thing. They're they're really hard to move in any direction. Uh, The problem, of course, is with the current situation is that to to, to get to what we need to in terms of herd, herd immunity, if you can't move the, the, the hesitant people or the, the resistant people, I should say, then you have to get basically everyone else and that's really, really hard because you, know, you need to get to like 80% to be really, really safe. That being said, schools, universities, daycares, those are places of incubation for viruses, right? Um, you know this from your own experience. You're in a classroom. That's very confined. You're in a classroom for long hours in the day, there's interaction, there's talking, there's talking in the hallways. you eat together in the cafeteria, or you're in the in the dorms or whatever you live with other people. It's very hard to mitigate those kind of circumstances with a mask mandate or you know wearing masks, which is a thing to do, but I mean you know the reality is, yeah, you can make people wear a mask in the classroom they have to eat they're going to they have to live with other people uh, and so this mask wearing thing is, is sure it's it's a secondary mitigation matter measure, measure but they're, they're the only way we can get this really safe is really to require people to get vaccinated and you know unfortunately it goes back to our beginning of a discussion that kind of stuff has gotten really politicized public opinion is really you know polarized on the issue with the vast majority often silent being supportive of these kind of things and that Puts administrators and decision and policymakers in, in this hard spot trying to figure out what to do when the science is, is pretty clear in the first place.
0: Right. Um, and I, I, this polarization is something I want to uh, touch on and something specifically that I want to speak to you about uh, because you're a f- frequent com- contributor in the conversation, Charleston Gazette, uh, Register Herald, the list goes on. Um, what do you think the role of the, the popular media is in this polarization, um, whether they have sort of mended issues between the two sides or whether they are exacerbating them? Um, what do you think the, the role of uh, popular media is?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you nothing new that you know, the media landscape has tr- dramatically transformed you know, since the 1990s and the 2000s and now today. And... Um, it, it becomes harder and harder for you know what we used to have, like community newspapers, right, that everybody read, which created like a, a venue in, in, in more ways than one for people to come together in these kind of things. The nightly broadcast, it created venues for people to come together and have some shared understanding of things, right? Uh, nowadays, you know, uh, it's very, very hard for newspapers and other me- forms of media to survive this strong competition. Uh, people don't read a lot of newspapers anymore. And if they read them, they read them selectively. They read them online. They don't get the paper copy or they read stuff on Twitter, you know, and get their their news that way. And so the way you can make up for this lack of general readership or, or access is you have to feed to a very committed source in the, of, of followers, right? And so you get uh, cable TV news stations that are over the top, aggressive, um, catering to one specific demographic, uh, segmenting the market into one is liberal, one's, you know, one's conservative, but that's kind of what you have to do to survive. That's, that's how you get viewership. That's how you get uh, advertising and all those kind of things. And the, the, the media, then the, the the more mainstream media is kind of left, you know, trying to figure out how to make this, how to make this work in a new world where, you know, media and newspapers and, and the news media are, are businesses at the same time. They're, they're, fulfill an important democratic function and it's really really challenging i think you know we're trying to or the media is trying to figure this out and make this work and there's you know some interesting places uh like the the pennsylvania capital star for example is a place that i i often write for they're like a nonprofit organization and they're trying to manage the finances in that way and they have you know sister sister newspapers in other states and they're trying to make it work that way. The conversation that you mentioned is a consortium of universities where people like myself and other experts write on the things there they know about and then you know you can you know, uh, newspapers or other forms of media can republish those stories. We've we got to be innovative here to, you know, do those kind of things because that's really the only way we can, you know, counteract the polarization, which is really hard because most policymakers and politicians really benefit from the polarization because that's what drives elections. That's what drives, you know, campaign contributions and all those kind of things. So, uh, it's, it's, we're really in a precarious state here where we have to figure out, you know, how we, how we get to a, a better place where we, you know, don't have those massively polarized situations going on there's there's nothing bad inherently bad in polarization but if if things get too far apart when there's no overlap when the the hills if you will and the distribution get too high then it gets problematic because the shared understanding and the shared sense of community goes away and then you know it's not a good thing for democracy
0: right right um and this is the sort of the issue that you kind of fall into right like with mainstream media it's becoming more and more of a competitive and I hate to say it, but it's a market at the end of the day. And uh, so that's, like you said, they have to diversify and sort of find their niche audiences and specifically talk to them and not just give them the news, but give them a certain narrative of the news. Um, And so that's what we're seeing is the major problem. And and when I try to think of solutions, um, I, I, I really think that academia needs to be closer to the public in a way that today I believe that the public tends to view academia, like you were saying earlier, this distrust of the elites, this distrust of authority, this this distrust of those who are um, sort of highly educated. Um, But I feel like the solution to this is sort of the bridge between academia and public life. Uh, do you feel as though those two things have been rifting off? Because I do feel like public life grounds academia, but somehow I've been seeing this sort of disconnect. Can you speak on that?
1: Yeah. So, you know, from my own personal experience and my own, you know, professional experiences, you know, before I be- became an academic, I worked uh, in the healthcare sector. And so, you know, my, my path is different, I think, from most other academics. I think it's problematic. I think there's, there's some real benefits, especially, you know, working in the field that you kind of study before you become an academic grounds you in a lot of ways and connects you in a lot of ways. Um, I, I think that's really, really helpful and, and really, really important. I think there's a lot there's lots lots of stuff going on, I think, in, in what you just described. I think uh, academia bears part of the fault here. I think, you know, the the way I think about pu- especially public institutions like Penn State Sp- Penn State is, you know, they're supported by the public they even, you know, if the, the, the funding has really, you know, declined to a minuscule amount at this point, but it's a public institution for the public good, you know, and, 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 and it, it should serve the public good. It should serve the state of Pennsylvania. It should serve the entire country. It should serve the entire world. And so uh, the connection I think between academics and their work and the real world is something universities need to emphasize more and need to reward more, quite frankly. Uh, you know there's, there's a vast discrepancies often between young academic scholars who wanna be involved in the real world and, and have their stuff, their work be meaningful and connected to the real world and higher ups in the academic ladder that don't think that's important or meaningful or shouldn't be valued. And on top of that university, you know, there's they care about publications really, really, I mean, you know, and good journals and all those kind of things. That's kind of what gets rewarded on the tenure track, right? They, they like it when you do stuff, uh, you know, in terms of service and talk to policymakers and write and those kind of things. But the reward is minuscule compared to the work that's involved in it. Oh, you know, in my own experience, that second part, you know, they kind of go together. But the second part can be much more meaningful because, you know, lots of studies end up in journals and they get citations and and academics read them, but they have no impact on the real world. Whereas, you know, the, the things I study are highly applicable to the real world. And if they just ended up in a in a journal for the rest of their lives, and nobody, nobody outside of the academic community academic community would read them. It would be a, a great disservice, I think. Um, at the same time, you know, um, there's there's this ongoing distrust that has been stoked by some people. There's just a distrust of academia, mostly people that have no idea what's going on in universities, right? Um, this whole viewing uh, uh, universities as indoctrination places for a left-wing people, um, Academics, it's just—I've never seen anything like it, you know. And so, just informing people more about what's going on in universities is just really important.
0: Yes, I, I wanted to move a little bit uh, beyond this topic because it's—it it's really, really stresses me out and it upsets me to speak about it. But uh, so, your most recent work uh, focuses on the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, provider networks, the opioid epidemic, um, and so I, I want you to like sort of let our listeners know about what. Uh, maybe of your choosing, um, something that you're, you're per, like, currently studying um, and uh, work that we expect to see from you in the future?
1: Well, there's a couple of things that I'm really passionate about. I think most of my work is really focused on healthcare access issues. And I think that's really, really important in terms of you know, moving towards a more equitable uh, society because, you know, if you're not healthy and you can't get access to health services when you need them, everything else doesn't fall into place in your life. And so I think it's, it's really, really important. And um, there's, there's a couple of big things I'm working on in, in two different strands. One's highly, you know, highly technical and some people might think boring, but it's, I'll give you an example and tell you why it matters. And that's provider networks. And provider networks are basically, you know, you get insurance coverage and then your insurance coverage allows you to see certain providers. And, you know, they reimburse the providers. And if you go outside of those provider networks, then you you're basically have to pay all, all or most of the services out of pocket. It's a highly technical issue. Everybody's always excited about, you know, giving people insurance coverage, but the insurance coverage is the first step. The provider network is what gets you the access, right? And so we've been doing a lot of work and we, we have some grant applications in to really, really focus on this kind of work because it's an important issue. If you get a provider directory and the provider directory is highly inaccurate, you know, and you can't find a provider to see you, then what do you go? You have to either not not get care or you're gonna end up in the emergency department, and both things are highly unfortunate. And you know, sometimes waiting might take months to see a provider. And so this isn't a you know technical issue that's highly important, I think that's under study that I I really focus on and I'm really excited about. The other thing is we've been doing a lot of work and continue to do a lot of work, we're thinking about how public programs like Medicaid or like uh, food stamps, as we call them, or or TANF and those kind of programs, how they're described and how they're framed and how that framing matters, how people think about them, whether they're willing to sign up for them, how states describe their programs on their websites or on their program brochures to, to uh, to potential consumers, you know, those kind of things and what impact that has on uh enrollments on on public support for these kind of programs just you know the the small things right that whether you say something like low income or poverty you know it doesn't matter in in whether people are supportive of it or willing to sign up for it there's there's a lot there and we do it in a lot of different ways i think this is one of the things i'm really passionate about right now great
0: great well thank you so much for joining us today professor Haider. i really enjoyed talking to you it was my pleasure Thank you for tuning in to this week's Paternal Fellows Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Feel free to listen to our past and future recordings on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or our Paternal Fellows website at la.psu.edu. That's all for this episode, and we'll see you on the next one.